Okay, so we filed for a hate speech investigation against the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Or technically speaking, I, George Hutchison, have requested a hate speech investigation against Catherine Tate, who is the CBC's president and CEO, and Michael Goldblum, who is CBC's chairman of the board. The request for the investigation is in response to an article published in February 2019 called Dear White People. Uh, the, the title is Dear Qualinat, and then in, quote, in parenthesis is White People. According to Wiktionary.com, Qualinat is an inuktitut word, which means non-Inuit people. YourDictionary.com defines Qualinat as people who are not Inuit, typically white people, considered as a group. So the problem with this article is that it makes many statements which incite hatred towards white people. In the Canadian Criminal Code, under subheading Willful Promotion of Hatred, it states that everyone who, by communicating statements other than in private conversation, willfully promotes hatred against an identifiable group, is guilty of an indictable offense and is liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding two years or an offense punishable by summary conviction. So there are many statements in the article which incite hatred towards white people, none of which is anything new. It's all the same kind of SJW neo-Marxist dogma that you get indoctrinated in in university. You can read our full statement on the website to get all the exact details about all the exact arguments. To me, the most clear-cut example of hate speech is the article's claim that all white people are racist. That's the one claim that I emphasized in the announcement video for this project. The author writes that all white people are racist to some degree because they are born and raised in a system made by white people for white people. So that's a clear example of hate speech because it's clearly referring to an identifiable group by name, which is white people. It's referring to us in our entirety. It says all white people. And it is assigning to us a trait which is arguably the most hated trait in modern society. So if I were in Canada or in the United States to go out on the street with a microphone and to interview random people and to, and to ask them, uh, excuse me, miss, or excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? Would you say that you hate racists? I'm sure I could easily find many people who would be very enthusiastic to declare their hatred for racists. And if you introduce into a society full of people who hate racists the idea that all white people are racist, it logically follows then for those people that, well, I hate racists, and if all white people are racists, then therefore I hate all white people. So it's in that sense that the statement, all white people are racist, incites hatred towards white people. In order to make the case that this statement does not incite hatred, you'd have to take the position that racism and racists are actually not hated in our society, which is an absurd and indefensible position. If you're a leftist and you want to dispute the idea that the statement, all white people are racist, constitutes hate speech, then you're going to have to take the position that you yourself don't hate racists and to say, no, I can't imagine people hating racists. So I filed for a hate speech investigation. Um, and in this recording, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some comments about this project. Uh, I'm going to talk about hate speech law in the context of free speech. And then I'm going to talk about three or four of the intended objectives of this project, all of which relate back to this discussion about free speech.
So to begin with, don't hate speech laws necessarily run against the principle of free speech? In invoking and employing hate speech law, aren't we violating the principle of free speech? Here I'm going to explore that question. So let me begin by suggesting that there are four general components or benefits of free speech. One is the ability to hear other people's perspectives. One is the ability to have your own perspective critiqued. One is the ability to critique the perspectives of others. And the fourth is the ability to have your own perspective heard. Obviously, all four of those components are interrelated. If your opponent can't express their perspective, then you don't get the benefit of hearing their perspective. If you can't hear their perspective, then you have nothing to work with in critique of that perspective. And if your opponent can't express their perspective, then they have no voice with which to critique you. And so you miss out on the opportunity to have your perspective critiqued. If one component of the puzzle is removed, then the whole ecosystem falls apart. If not everyone in a society has the freedom to speak, then no one in that society is fully profiting from all the benefits of free speech. If not everyone in a society has the freedom to speak, then that society as a collective doesn't have free speech. So when it comes to our appeal to hate speech law, are we undermining free speech? Are we removing free speech from a society that has it? My perspective is that no, we're not. In appealing to hate speech law, we are not removing free speech from a society that has it. Instead, we are applying hate speech law in a society where free speech is already gone. Indeed, it is because free speech is already gone that we're resorting to the use of hate speech law. If we were able to address anti-white hate speech with our own counter speech, then we'd be doing so, as we have been trying to do for six years now. For example, way back in 2014, when Students for Western Civilization first tried to launch, we did so by sending an article to the York University school newspaper. The article was titled, York Needs a White Students Union. You can find the article on our webpage. In that article, we brought up this point that the ideas that are being taught about white people in our universities promote and incite hatred towards white people, and therefore, thereby, they legally constitute hate speech. Our conclusion, however, was not to say that this is illegal, therefore, we're going to call the police and we're going to start having our professors arrested. Instead, we were just pointing to hate speech law as a reference point to demonstrate a societal norm in order to bolster our already reasonable position that we should be able to openly criticize these ideas and to create an institution, a white students' union, through which to do that. Our position was that if it is the case, as evidenced by criminal law, that we live in a society where inciting hatred towards ethnic groups is considered unacceptable, well, we perceive that the universities are inciting hatred towards white people. And therefore, we want to debate and challenge those ideas with our speech. And the talking points that we were taking issue with at that time, for the record, are the same arguments that we're now seeing being promoted by our taxpayer-funded media through the CBC article. These ideas that all white people are racist, only white people can be racist, white people are privileged, white people are fragile, etc. So we've been trying to use free speech, we've been trying to use our speech to combat these ideas for six years now. But even back then, our mere speech wasn't effective because they refused to publish the article. And things have only become worse from there. So here are some examples of the four major 
forms of the oppression of our speech that we've been seeing. One is the shutting down of lectures and talks, for example, at universities. Faith Goldie was supposed to give a talk at Laurier University, two talks, um, in 2018. The first talk I was there, the fire alarm was pulled, uh, which of course is a crime. At the second time, on account of threats of leftist violence, the university said that it would require security costs, which were so high that the student group hosting the talk said that they wouldn't be able to afford to go through with it. Uh, earlier last year, in 2019, Lauren Southern and Stefan Molyneux were supposed to give a talk at a Greek community center, and that got shut down. Dr. Ricardo Duchesne successfully gave a talk at UBC last year, but you can find videos of the talk where Antifa are blocking the entrance, and people have to physically squeeze through in order to, to get to the talk. And I'm sure many people saw that and decided, oh, I don't want to go because I don't want to get assaulted squeezing through the entrance. Blocking people's path is assault, for the record. And last week, there was a talk that was supposed to be held again at the University of British Columbia, which was on the topic of leftist terrorism, but it was shut down due to threats of leftist terrorism, like Faith Goley's talk at Laurier. And they were told that the, they required security costs, which were too high for the, for the student group to afford, and so the talk was canceled. Another example of how our speech is being oppressed is in the case of professors who are advocating for violence to shut down non-leftist perspectives. Examples include uh, Dr. Matthew Sears of the University of New Brunswick and Dr. Michael Capello of the University of Regina, both of whom I referred to in the announcement video for this project. Both Dr. Matthew Sears and Dr. Michael Capello have advocated for punching people. Dr. Sears has advocated for throwing milkshakes at people, for throwing eggs at people, uh, people that they call Nazis and racists, etc. Advocating for crimes like that is itself a crime. Of course, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it would fall under Section 464 of the Code on counseling an offense. Every person who counsels another person to commit an indictable offense is, if the offense is not committed, guilty of an indictable offense and liable to the same punishment to which a person who attempts to commit that offense is liable. Dr. Matthew Sears has even specifically called for the harassment of students in free speech clubs. And indeed, consistent with Dr. Sears' incitement to punch people, a white student, part of a free speech club at the University of British Columbia, was recently punched in the gut. And uh, I think it was in November of last year, maybe in December. Another example of how our, our ability to address leftist hate speech using our counter speech is, is being shut down is in the case of social media. Social media, I think, is one of the, the most, the biggest concerns for me when it comes to freedom of speech. In the case of, for example, uh, Facebook and YouTube. Of course, we have an ongoing human rights complaint against Facebook, whose policy explicitly bans only white people's nationalism, but allows for nationalism of all other identifiable groups. That complaint is still slowly making its way through the bureaucracy. And YouTube has been banning white people's channels. Nick Fuentes just had his channel demonetized. James Alsup had his channel deleted earlier last year. The primary activity of James Alsup's channel was combating anti-white hate speech using counter speech. So the censoring of the internet is especially concerning because the internet is the modern public forum. People don't participate in politics by going to the town square or the agora anymore. The modern public square is Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. You can go out into your town square with the aim of partaking in public life, but no one else is going to be there. They're all going to be at home interacting with each other through social media. And to be barred from social media is to be barred from participating in modern political life. 
And the final example of why simple speech is not an effective instrument for combating anti-white hate speech is the case of hate speech law itself in Canada. Indeed, the effect that hate speech law usually has is actually just to further oppress and silence white people's political concerns, such as anti-white hate speech. This takes the form not even necessarily of actually charging and arresting people, but in the form of threatening us into not saying anything. For example, when we did our White Students' Union campaign, when Students for Western Civilization did our White Students' Union poster campaign in 2015 to challenge anti-white hate speech, uh, after our article was rejected, so we, we did a poster campaign to promote the group, Vice Magazine interviewed a criminal lawyer for an article in which it was suggested that we were actually the ones who were guilty of hate speech. The article didn't actually accuse us of hate speech because there were and are no grounds upon which to make that accusation, but it said that if we were to say this and if we were to do that, that those comments might fall into the realm of hate speech. It served as a threat or a warning that, oh, you'd better be careful or else. And guys in the group, in Students for Western Civilization, were saying that, what the hell is this? We speak out in opposition to hate speech, and now we find that we are the ones who are being threatened with hate speech law? We actually even had one guy uh, leave the group because he cited that article. So that's an example of where hate speech law actually functions to enable anti-white hate speech by providing it with yet another means of shelter from critique because it served to deter people from speaking out for fear of being charged themselves. So we're opposed to hate speech law in principle. We'd prefer to live in a country that doesn't have hate speech law, where we can resolve our conflicts through debate rather than violence. But until then, in the short term, we're going to continue to play by the rules until, in the long term, we can change those rules. So not only has the attempt to combat anti-white hate speech using counter-speech been unsuccessful up until this point, but we've actually been losing ground in the sense that our right to free speech has been even further infringed upon. So thinking about these questions, my understanding of the concept of hate speech has evolved over time. Really, when you say, I support free speech, what you're saying is, I believe in resolving conflicts consensually. Or in other words, I believe in cooperating with my opponent. But if the people with whom you are conflicting do not also believe in resolving the conflict consensually and through cooperation, if they don't want to cooperate with you, then your support for free speech is irrelevant. Free speech means nothing without the consent of the opposing party. And if your opponent doesn't agree with those terms, the response is not to make the same request again and again and again. Instead, it's to move on to plan B. You can propose cooperation and free speech from the beginning of a conflict, but if your opponent just says no, then there's really nothing you can do. You can't have free speech without the agreement and the consent of, of the opposing party. So we still believe in free speech and open debate, but using debate to solve conflicts only works in the context where free speech is still present, and that's only possible if competing parties agree to cooperate to solve their problems with speech. When your opponent rejects your offer of diplomacy, and when they start censoring you and threatening you and attacking you for speaking, you can't speech your way out of that. At that point, free speech is off the table, and you now find yourself in a state of war and violence. You can't respond to violence with speech. The appropriate response to violence is violence. And so that's where we are with these hate speech charges. Criminal law is legal violence. 
We would combat anti-white hate speech with our own counter speech if we could, but since we can't do that on account of censorship and the violent oppression of the left, we're moving on to plan B and we're responding to their violence with violence. By employing hate speech law, we're not infringing on free speech. We're not removing free speech from a society that has it. But rather, we are applying hate speech law in a context where free speech is now long gone. Indeed, we are appealing to state violence because free speech is gone. And the theory is that we want to use hate speech law for the aim of steering the conflict out of its current state of violence and back into the realm of peaceful debate. Okay, so that's my perspective of the relationship between our use of hate speech law in regards to free speech. Now I want to talk about three potential objectives that we hope to accomplish uh, through the use of this approach. Things that we hope to see. Okay, so here's the theory. The way I see it is that we're using hate speech law the same way, in the same way that a democracy can declare a temporary state of war in which people's rights are temporarily suspended for the sake of the greater good. In Canada, for example, we have the War Measures Act, or in the Roman Republic, the, in a state of emergency, the Republic would assign a temporary dictator in order to handle the crisis. We see our use of hate speech law in this case as a temporary measure as a response to leftist terrorism. The strategy is that in this current state of war where white people can't express our concerns, the way we want to use hate speech law is in the attempt to nudge the conflict out of its current state of violent oppression and back into the realm of debate. The aim is to send a message that censoring white people won't be tolerated. If you're not going to allow us to speak and to criticize your hate speech with our speech, then guess what? We have the power to shut down your speech as well. You can't just incite hatred towards us and then run to your safe space so you don't have to defend your ideas. We have the ability to reach out and touch you even in there. Your safe space is not safe. So why don't you come out of your hole and try to defend your positions with words instead of with violence? If you want to express your perspective that all white people are racist, or that white people's position in society was illegitimately acquired because we are the passive beneficiaries of unearned privileges, I want you to express those ideas, even if those ideas are used to incite or rationalize resentment towards Europeans. But we also have to be able to respond to those arguments and to openly critique them. But if you want to speak, then let us speak. And if you won't let us speak, then we won't let you speak either. So that's the theory. Objective number one, to turn the conflict back towards the realm of debate. The way that we're using these laws in theory does not run counter the, to the principle of free speech, but it is actually an expression of our desire for free speech and open debate. And that brings me to my second point, which again, consistent with this idea, with this principle of free speech and the idea of holding up the mutilated corpse of bad arguments for the world to see, rather than using these charges to silence and bury the arguments in the article. We actually see this as an opportunity to bring attention to those arguments, such as the argument that all white people are racist. We want to demonstrate and to emphasize to the public that, look, this ideology exists and it is held and promoted by people in positions of power and it needs to be addressed. 
The way I've said it in the past is that we don't want to silence the positions of the far left. We want to hold a megaphone to their lips and we want the world to hear what they're saying. And then the third objective related to those two previous points is that we see this as an opportunity to frame these arguments for the public, to teach them how to interpret them and to train them, specifically Europeans of course, in this terminology of promoting hatred and identifiable group. So I'd suggest that for the majority of Europeans, when they encounter these kinds of anti-white SJW arguments, they are offended by them and they reject them. That assumption is consistent with the principle of white fragility. Robin D'Angelo's thesis of white fragility, the idea that the vast majority of white people reject SJWism. D'Angelo says that we reject her arguments because there's something wrong with us. I would suggest that the reason why we reject her arguments is because there's something wrong with the arguments. But while there might be a disagreement as to why most white people reject these far-left ideas, there's a consensus there on both the right and the left on the fact that the vast majority of white people reject these far-left social justice warrior arguments. But even if most Europeans are offended by these arguments and reject them and are disturbed by them, they may not really know how to articulate with precision specifically what the problem with those arguments are. And the way that I propose to express what the problem is and to express what exactly is the reason why you're upset and offended by this ideology is that it's inciting hatred towards you. The problem with this ideology, SJWism, is that these ideas incite hatred towards us which is how the law is worded in the Canadian Criminal Code. So this is an effective and concise way of expressing exactly what the problem is. Even outside of the context of the law, and even outside of the context of Canada, this is powerful and useful rhetoric. And then there's the second term, identifiable group. So, hey there, individual white person. Did you even realize that you're part of an identifiable group? And not only that, but a legally protected identifiable group? If a typical boomer, a typical white person, were to say that they didn't realize that, or they didn't know that, or they didn't think in those terms, I wouldn't be surprised. Because honestly, I didn't realize that at first either. I remember when I first looked at hate, prop hate propaganda laws, back when I was still a liberal individualist like most white people, it didn't even immediately occur to me that white people qualify as an identifiable group. And I had to ask myself, hey, do these laws protect us too? Because I, I honestly was unsure. But recognizing yourself as a part of an identifiable group is an empowering perspective. A common talking point on the left is the idea that white people's lack of racial awareness is an example of one of our privileges. But to the contrary, while I would agree with the assumption that most white people lack racial awareness, I'd argue that that lack of awareness and that lack of group consciousness is not a privilege or a benefit, but instead it is actually a political impediment, especially in the context of a multicultural, multi-ethnic society. Indeed, another talking point of the contemporary far left is the idea that whiteness is an illegitimate identity which must be oppressed and destroyed. For example, Dr. Michael Capello, who I referred to earlier, who gave a talk called It's Okay to Be Against Whiteness, and stood in front of the audience and admonished them to punch Nazis. The argument goes that whiteness or white identity is illegitimate because they argue that white identity is inherently oppressive or whiteness is inherently oppressive. Is it true that whiteness is inherently oppressive? Absolutely. But it is no more oppressive than any other identity. To say that whiteness is oppressive 
is just a corollary of saying that whiteness is empowering because power is inherently oppressive. Power is that which pushes, that which impedes or stifles the trajectory of a competing force. And in the case of ethnic identity politics, whiteness is empowering and thus oppressive because it enables us to assert our political will over and above the political will of competing groups. It is not in the interest of non-white people for Europeans to foster a strong sense of our collective identity. Because a strong sense of our identity is empowering for us, and it is thereby relatively disempowering for them. It is not in their interest for us to be empowered, because we pose a potential threat to them and their interests, and vice versa. And so those who perceive themselves in conflict with Europeans, they are incentivized to disempower us by undercutting and undermining our conscious sense of our collective identity, so as to disempower us, so that, should they need to, they can oppress and stifle our political will and realize their own in its place. And by that same token, a strong sense of white identity is empowering for you as a European or as a white person. Recognizing the fact that you are a member of an identifiable group is a fundamental building block of politics and a necessary stepping stone for an engaged political life. With a salient understanding of one's own collective political identity comes the ability to recognize and understand your distinct political interests and to assert those interests. And in the specific context of Canadian law, your self-awareness of your group identity imbues you not only with a clear understanding of the political circumstances in which you find yourself, but also with tangible, real-world legal power. So these are the two terms, inciting hatred and identifiable group. I don't think that most European Canadians have consciously realized that this SJW ideology is inciting hatred towards them. And they don't realize that inciting hatred towards white people is a crime. And they don't even recognize themselves as part of an identifiable group, which legally they are. So in this pioneering instance of requesting these, this hate speech investigation, I hope that it helps to foster a consciousness of those perspectives. So the next time you see another anti-white article pop up in the Toronto Star, as they do every week in Shri Paradkar's race and gender column, or you see another movie on, on Netflix which celebrates and glorifies the murder of white people, now you can articulate with precision what exactly the problem is. The problem with this article or this movie is that it's inciting hatred towards an identifiable group. Which identifiable group in particular? White people. Why is that a problem for you specifically? Because that's your group, and that of your predecessors, and that of your children. Shri Paradkar isn't just inciting hatred towards no one in particular. She's inciting hatred towards you. When you open the news and see that some leftist group wants to tear down the statue of a white person, that's not just a statue. That's not just history in general. That's not just culture. That's your statue they're tearing down. That's your history they're erasing or rewriting. That's your culture that they're destroying. And when you see that mass immigration is turning white people into a minority, that's your group that's being marginalized and stripped of its human right to autonomy and self-determination. And you need to respond to those attacks and to assert yourself. And then, of course, there's a name for that idea of asserting the interests of your people, and that name is nationalism the policy or doctrine of asserting the interests of one's own nation. 
or one's own ethnically identifiable group. Okay, so that's it. In summary, free speech is an ecosystem which isn't viable or sustainable without the consent of the conflicting parties. If conflicting parties refuse to cooperate, then free speech is not an option. If our opponents refuse to defend their hate speech with their words, and they want to attack us and violently censor us, then resolving the conflict with speech isn't viable. Thus, we are proceeding violently, employing state force in the form of criminal law. The objectives of this approach are to return the conflict to the realm of speech and debate, and to demonstrate to the left that we don't have to quietly endure their hate speech and their violence, that we have a viable means of recourse. Another objective is to bring attention to and to shine a light on these anti-white arguments being propagated through our universities and our media. And the final objective is to frame the debate for the public by empowering them with this rhetoric of inciting hatred and identifiable group. That's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>